And so that video is the heart of our curriculum that we're starting. And even though it looks like the only parents that are here today are myself and my wife, I did want everyone to be um, familiar with that because some of you have grandkids, some of you have great grandkids, some of you are interacting with other people that have children who may attend. So I wanted everyone to kind of have an idea and a view of what is going to be taught to our children. Because um, as that video started, the world is catechizing our children. And so it's important that we are also catechizing. And a catechism, if you don't know, is, is a teaching. That's what it is. It's teaching and instruction of the faith. So I wanted to make sure that everyone is aware of the sort of things that we will be teaching for our Sunday school for our children. In addition to that, though, there will be videos that are connected to each of the lessons that will likely be put there as well, um, which is remarkable because one of the things that's neat about the catechism is they mentioned that there's a story of Noah, you know there's a story of the furnace and those things, and one of the stories that's in this curriculum is the, is the story of the daughters of Zelophehad. A strange feeling that none of you have any idea who Zelophehad is or his daughters, um, but it's a story of God's justice. It's a story of how God provides for this family, even when there are no sons born to the family in the midst of, it's Numbers 27, Numbers 36, but it's a very thorough curriculum that covers stories of the Bible that many of us, even who have been in church our whole lives, may not be familiar with or may not know. And it's a phenomenal um, book, phenomenal curriculum, and I'm really excited about it. I just want to make sure that everybody was at least familiar with what we're going to be teaching. This morning's sermon text, though, is from Psalm 74. Let me read that. O oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up your signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. In all its carved wood, they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. There is none among us who knows how long. How long, O oh God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up, over, you dried up ever flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours is also the night. You've established the heavenly lights and sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You've made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Do not let the downtrodden be turned turn back in shame. 
Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know from your scriptures that you are good even when everything around us seems to be crumbling or or crashing down. We know that even in the midst of calamity, in the midst of what seems like the apocalypse, you are still good. You are still working all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. We can rest in the truths and the wonders of your scripture. We know that you sit upon your throne and you do that which pleases you. And ultimately what pleases you is good and holy and right. And we can trust and take comfort in that. We thank you for how good you are to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a fairly recent, not actually, not really recent, but something that's been very common in media and books and movies and TV is the genre of post-apocalyptic stories or post-apocalyptic literature. Um, we see these in things like One modern example would be there was a series of books and movies a few years back called The Hunger Games, or another example would be like Cormac McCarthy's got a book called The Road, things like really the the genre, I'm blanking at the other options, is what does it look like when the world ends, is essentially what the genre is, is after the apocalypse, after everything's crashed, after everything's crumbled down and everything is broken and dead, what's next? That's essentially what the genre is, and it's the idea that even though the world's ending, something's still going on, and that's sort of what the psalm we're looking at today is, but before I get there, the question becomes, what is apocalypse? What is the apocalypse? In one sense, it's the end. That's the general term in which, when we're referring to the apocalypse, especially as you're looking at any sort of movie, specifically in like monster movie or horror film or thriller, the idea of apocalypse is just the end. The world is coming to the end. It's crashing. Meteorite's going to strike the earth if we're thinking about, um, you know, the movie Armageddon, or if we're thinking about really anything in that. It's the world is ending. What's going on? That's generally what we mean by apocalypse. But that's not entirely what the Bible means by this. Um, One example uh, of, you know, kind of me wrestling through this for the last, not really wrestling, but working through this for the last 10 years or so, about eight years ago, I'd started writing a short story. I never finished it, probably for the better. It was mostly for a way for me to blow off steam after I got off work with retail, um, which is why the story was about a monster destroying my workplace um, and the city. But um, the only thing really that I'm proud of with this story. It was an interaction in which two characters are engaging in dialogue, and one of them is like freaking out and saying, you know, this is the apocalypse. And the other person says, no, it's not. And they go back and forth, and eventually it turns into, well, how can you say that it's not? This, our city's being destroyed. There's no hope of anything. And then the person kind of, the character ends up responding and saying, the apocalypse isn't necessarily a bad thing. And they explain that really what the apocalypse is, and ultimately it was just me putting my own theology of apocalypse into prose, uh, was that it's 
the revealing of Jesus. Apocalypse means revealing. It's the revealing of the Son of God. It's the second coming. It's God returning in judgment. So although there is cataclysmic events, it is God coming in glory. Which, if you're finding yourself identified in Christ, that's a great thing. If you're finding yourself with forgiveness and part of God's covenant people, then that's an excellent thing. That's not a bad thing at all. And yet, through all of this, we see that whether we're looking at, you know, the book of Revelation or Second Thessalonians or whatever instances we see of the scriptures telling us of the end of the world, we can have hope that even if the world's falling apart, God is still good, which is more kind of what's in line for the psalm for today. And recently, a few weeks back, we looked at Jesus' prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the Second Temple and its fulfillment thereof in 70 AD as recorded by various historians. And now, but you may wonder, okay, that was the Second Temple. What about the First Temple? Well, and that's what this text is about today. This text is ultimately about the psalmist wrestling with the temple has been destroyed, Jerusalem has been destroyed, what in the world do we do now? This is psalm is a lament. The, the psalmist here is mourning over how the people of Israel have been treated. That, you know, Jerusalem has been destroyed. It's been burned to the ground. The temple has been destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar has now taken over and is ruling these people. And the psalmist is looking at God going, what in the world are you doing? And it's a lament. But the thing about lament is it doesn't just stay with mourning. This psalm is about the ju God's judgment of his own people, but it's also about God's historic faithfulness to his people. It's about his might and his mercy, even when it seems that the entire world is falling apart. And I mean, in this, it's Babylon is Israel's foe. And yet, what we see many times in the Old Testament is that though Babylon is Israel's foe, the Lord describes Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar as his servant. We see the same thing with Cyrus and Assyria. They're described as God's servant and that God is using these foreign nations. God has done for them in history, but then also God's judgment toward them. And the language in here, some of it's a bit old, but it's really important to take note of this language and how it's applied to the people and God's relationship to them. And we'll see that here, in, even in the first two verses. Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old. Language of purchase there is important. Which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. If you've been in Sunday school, all of that should sound really familiar from this week and from last week. Because that's key to the book of Exodus. And the psalmist, though, is speaking back to God and saying, remember everything that you've historically done for your people. Do not abandon us. And yet it sort of carries the same spirit as what the Israelites said to Moses and said to God, is why have you brought us in this wilderness just to kill us? Why have you led us out of Egypt just so that we might starve? But yet... The psalmist doesn't stop there. And as mentioned, this also refers 
to the Exodus in verse 2. And if I've not emphasized it enough, the Exodus is extremely important in understanding the entire Bible. And here, there's a reference to what seems like, or not what seems like, there's a reference to Exodus 15, which I mentioned last week in Sunday school. It's the song of Moses. It's this song that as the people of Egypt, or the people of Israel immediately come out of Egypt, they sing this song of praise to God in remembrance to what the Lord has done. And Moses sings a song, and the people of Israel respond in singing parts of it back to him. And yet, in part of it, in verse 13, Moses sings this: "You have led in your steadfast people, or sorry, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. You've guided them." by your strength to your holy abode. So the people whom you have redeemed. Same language is used right here in verse 2. And then in verse 16 of Exodus 15, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. He's referring to the other nations. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people whom you have purchased so again, the psalmist is picking up on the same language that Moses is using in this psalm, or in the song that Moses is singing, excuse me, in response to God's deliverance, the psalmist is referring back to that language with his language of purchased of old, redeemed. And so therefore, the, Mo, the, not the, Moses, the psalmist is referring back to what the Lord has done for his people in the Exodus. And he's making a reference to Mount Zion, which Mount Zion in the Bible refers to a couple different things. Mount Zion could refer to just the dwelling place of God in heaven, which is often the case. But yet also, Mount Zion often refers to Jerusalem, refers to the city of Jerusalem, and it refers to the general dwelling place of God, as God would dwell in the temple. So here, though, it seems likely that it's referring to Jerusalem. And the reason for this statement is, looking down, it's, remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. And given the rest of the psalm, it seems most likely that what the psalmist is saying, remember Jerusalem. Remember the city that you have given us and where you have dwelt and where your temple was set. And the temple was the dwelling place of God. Reading verse 3, I think further solidifies this. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. Well, what ruins is he referring to? The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. The sanctuary and the ruins he's referring to are the temple. So this lament here, it's the psalmist pleading that God would not abandon them in light of everything that has just happened. In light of the judgment that he has pronounced and in the light of the judgment that has happened to these people, the psalmist is pleading that God would not abandon them. And it, even in the historical setting here, in, if you think about Ezekiel 10, the presence of God leaves this first temple. In the second Kings, the temple is destroyed. And so in history, the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C., which is what we see in second, thing, second Kings 25. I'll read from that in a little bit. But the events here are not simply an act of tragedy or an act of Babylon, you know, seeking to comp conquer Israel, but rather the way the scriptures guide this event, describe this event to us, it is God's active judgment against his people for their heinous sins. And I saw something recently 
of, it was on the internet, where someone had made a comment about, well, you know, and it, you can disprove the Bible when you see there's historical record for Israel worshiping multiple gods. Which if you know anything about the Old Testament, yes, we know. We're well aware that Israel worshiped multiple gods. They often, unfortunately, worshiped pagan gods. That was the problem. And so it's not a disproving of the Bible. It actually proves what the Bible has illustrated to us. It's not that they worship multiple gods. That was the problem. And that's what leads to the destruction of the temple, is God is judging them for their wickedness. And then it's in verses 3 through 8 we see the destruction of the temple is what's illustrated. And your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. Those who like to swing axes in a forest of trees and all its carved wood, they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all of the meeting places of God in the land. They're roaring in the meeting place. And so obviously this is an inappropriate action for someone in church. You don't roar in church, though I'm certain my kids have done that and probably will again. But yet that's not really what's meant here. We get the picture that you don't roar in church, but it's actually referring to men who have entered the temple and they're acting like beasts. They're desecrating and they're destroying the temple. And then verse 5 gives this image of a man with an axe having a heyday in a forest. I mean, think of a, a bull in a china shop. They're destroying everything they can in this temple. And the reason for this metaphor, though, is that the amount of wood that is used in the temple is incredible. If you look at 1 Kings 5 and 6 and you see Solomon acquiring the, the building materials for the temple... There is a lot of wood used to the degree where we see that Solomon gives a whole lot of materials to another um, king, and the king gives him as much wood as he would desire. And so the psalmist, though, is not just reporting these issues, but he's weeping in response to what's happening in the temple. They set your, your sanctuary on fire. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did in 586. He burned down Jerusalem and the temple. We read this in 2 Kings 25, verse 9. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And that's what we read in verses 7 and 8. They burned the entire city of Jerusalem down when Babylon came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And so most of the lament here, though, is about the Babylonian destruction. But also note that he states they have profaned the dwelling place of your name. So it's not merely about them destroying a city. It's not merely about the destruction of Jerusalem. But it's about them mocking the Lord God. So it's not merely about the destruction of a city or a building, but it's about the dwelling place of the Lord's name. And yet if we look back to verse 4, I skipped over something, and I did so intentionally because of how it fits with verse 9. Let me read verse 9, and then I'm going to read back verse 4. We do not see our signs. 
Then in verse 4, the second part of that, we have, they set up their own signs for signs, which is really confusing because we just have the word signs here. And it makes you wonder, what are they referring to by signs? And in verse 4, the writers have set their own banners up in this area where there historically were banners for the different um, tribes within Israel. Those were taken down, those were destroyed. And instead, Babylon put up their own declarations of this is ours. They put up their own signs. They removed the banners of the houses of Israel, and they've set up their own instead. But the more significant thing that we see here is they've removed the sign and the instance of the banners of the people of Israel, but something that's generally present in judgment in the Old Testament, there is no longer any prophet. There is none among us who knows how long. The psalmist is saying there's no one in the office of prophet here to tell us what's going on. There's no one in the office of prophet here to tell us how long this is going to occur. When you think to Jeremiah 29, there's this instance where they're told there will be 70 years of judgment here. Happens with the other prophets as well. They're given a specific period of time for how long the judgment will occur. But the psalmist is lamenting that they don't have that. They don't have a prophet to tell them what's going on or how long or the case. Because a prophet is a person who is the mouthpiece of God. The prophet was the person who declared the words of God to the people. But the psalmist is saying, we don't have that. And at the same point, the psalmist is, in a sense, functioning in this sense. But yet, the psalmist doesn't respond with merely a question concerning how long, but he's much more focused on the response to the Lord. In verse 10, how long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? And note how that goes back to the dwelling place of your name. There's not merely just a concern for the people, but it's a concern for God. Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. The psalmist here is wondering when Lord, are you going to act? When are you going to destroy those who oppose us, but also those who oppose you? And sometimes it's really easy for us to wonder the same thing, isn't it? To wonder, how long will God allow false teachers to blaspheme his name under the guise of being Christian? Under the instance of false teachers who seek to bring up their own wealth and their own fame, and they're doing it in the name of Jesus, even though they're saying things that are not true about the Lord God. Or even we might wonder about denominations that have clearly abandoned biblical teaching and preach whatever they want to about God, completely rejecting the scriptures, preaching there's multiple ways toward God, preaching that God is exactly who they want him to be and never opposing anything that they think. But that God in their picture is just someone who makes them feel good. And we can stop and think, how long will this go on? You know, or even examples we see in the New Testament, we see with Jesus. You know, similar to what we looked at last week, we can wonder, when will God defend himself? Why does God hold back his hand? And is it similar to what we looked at in Psalm 73? The wicked are prospering. When is God going to do anything? When is God going to do something? And yet as we compare the two Psalms, 
In 73, the psalmist is praying that God would judge the wicked. And here, the psalmist is lamenting that God has judged the wicked in Israel. But yet also, the psalmist is praying that God would judge those whom he has used to judge Israel. That God would judge the Babylonians who've judged Israel, but they've also blasphemed the Lord God. And it really brings us about an interesting point, though. I mean, have we really, I'm sure we have, wondered, or even more, have you heard someone ask, well, why doesn't God just destroy all the bad people? It's not a bad question, but we have to realize the immediate answer for that is because you would be included in that. And it's anytime someone who's scoffing the Bible asks, well, if God's good, why doesn't he just destroy everyone who's evil? Well, he did that. He did that in the flood. He did that in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the same people who would say, well, why doesn't God just destroy all the bad people would call God unjust for these things in the Bible. And I've heard it. Because if you think about the Canaanite conquest and how quick people are to say, well, God, you know, he killed a bunch of people. Yeah. Well, the flood, God killed a bunch of people. Yeah. (laughs) But God was righteous and just to do such things. God's judgment always comes at the right time, and it is always righteous. So even though we might have moments where we see the wickedness around us, we see a society advocating for the murder of unborn children, we see a society claiming that God made mistakes in how he has ordained marriage, or that God made mistakes in his creation ordinance in relation to that he has created man and woman. We see others harming children or trafficking children. We see instances of parents who will sell their children into slavery just so they can get another hit. And we might easily step back and wonder, why does God allow this to occur? We may, like the psalmist, cry, take your hand from the fold of your garment and destroy them. But when we do, we also ought to remember the rest of this psalm. We ought to remember the scriptures. Because we cannot think that God is impotent. It's not that God is unable to do these things. It's that God is incredibly merciful. We cannot think that he's powerless, but we should remember what the scriptures tell us. The scriptures tell us in the Psalms that God sits upon his throne and does that which pleases him. God is maximizing his glory in all things that he is doing. And yet if we were to stop here in this Psalm, it would be rather bleak. So it's important to remember that the psalmist doesn't just stop with the feeling of bleakness. And laments generally start this way. They start off really somber and bleak and devastating. They often, or almost always, turn things around. The psalmist reorients his own perspective and also the perspective of the readers back to the goodness of God. Even in the midst of God judging and disciplining his people, the psalmist has the right perspective. And that is indeed the nature of biblical lament. They mourn the events that are happening around them, and yet they return the focus of the reader and the writer back to God's providence and God's goodness and God's sovereign hand. And it should be a guide for us in how we lament when we see 
wicked things around us, and we pray, God, why won't you stop this? Or God, please cease the wicked and evil things from happening. We also should turn and remember all of the good things that God has done and God's goodness and how mighty God is. And it's in verse 12, though, that we see this turning point. The psalmist confesses in verse 12, Yet God, my King, is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. The psalmist there, it's not that God's not working. God is indeed working salvation, even as they watch the temple in Jerusalem burn down. He's working salvation in the midst of the earth. In 13 and 14, we see the psalmist speaking of God's might and God's greatness. He may then makes reference to sea monsters in Leviathan. It's fascinating. I mentioned monster stories at the beginning, and that's kind of at the heart of this here. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of sea monsters on the water. You crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave him his foot for the creatures of the wilderness. There's a lot of debate about what Leviathan refers to and these sea monsters. Because in a very modern perspective, most of us would be quick to say sea monsters don't exist. Maybe, maybe not. Not super important today because it doesn't change much. But maybe it's possible that in your footnotes of your scriptures, it might say a crocodile or an alligator. Um, if it doesn't say that here, it probably says that in Job and uh, Job 38, or sorry, Job 41. Probably by the description was not an alligator or a crocodile. Look at Job 41 and you'll understand. Others, though, have said it's something like a plesiosaurus, which is that giant underwater dinosaur that you'll find, or something like some have said something similar to the Loch Ness Monster, just a giant, massive water creature. Yet ultimately, there's not enough to really pinpoint the exact species, if it was a real creature, whether it was fictional. There seems to be a greater defense for it being a reference to an ancient Near Eastern mythology. And there's ultimately what the psalmist is saying here, though, whether the creature is real historically or whether it's not, doesn't change much with what we grab by it. What the psalmist is saying that this creature, this massive giant terror, or, um, terror, absolutely, yeah, this massive terrible creature, God is bigger and stronger than that. So if we were to think of something like Megalodon, if you know what that is, the giant shark creature that's supposedly living in the ocean, but no one's seen it, or something like the Loch Ness Monster, but yet with the attitude and intensity of Godzilla, that's kind of what's being portrayed here. And yet, the picture is, imagine if that creature were real, God is greater than this creature. God is greater than the biggest monster you can fathom. And this Leviathan creature, though, is mentioned six times in the Old Testament. The most extensive description, as I mentioned, is in Job 41, where the picture is that God essentially is telling Job, humble yourself because this creature Leviathan, this creature of your nightmares, I play with it my hand and I draw it up by a hook. I have destroyed this creature. I am greater than this creature. God is using this creature to humble Job because Job has some sort of idea for this creature being this big, massive beast that God is greater than. 
And ultimately, that's the picture that's being given. The biggest monster of your nightmares, the biggest monster you can fathom or think of, God is bigger than that. Some commentators, though, with good reason, have suggested that these sea serpents and this Leviathan are simply just a metaphor for chaos. Um, and I learned this week there's a whole genre of literature called Chaoskampf, a German word, that is devoted to this concept and this idea. So that's a fun fact. But if that's the case, if this is referring to chaos, then what's being said here is that God has conquered chaos and that God has put order in chaos. And so this monster being a metaphor for chaos or this monster being a metaphor for just scary things, either way, God is bigger than all of your problems, all of your monsters, all of your chaos. And so whether this is, though, a biblical picture of the VeggieTales song, God is Bigger Than the Boogeyman, or if it's about God sending the asteroid that destroyed the dinosaurs, or however they died off, or if it's simply just a metaphor for God conquering chaos, what we see is a demonstration that God is a mighty God. And then the psalmist, though, here continues to emphasize God's mighty deeds. But he returns, though, to, to referencing the Exodus once again. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. It's, uh, again, a picture of God providing water for the Israelites from a rock. But also, there's many have suggested that in verse 14, 13, you broke the heads of sea monsters on the waters, that it's likely also there referring to the splitting of the Red Sea. And so what the psalmist is doing is referring back to the Exodus, referring back to God's mighty deeds and mighty conquering over what seems like unstoppable forces of water. Dried up ever-flowing streams, referring to the splitting of the Red Sea or even just the crossing of the Jordan. And yet the psalm is not only re referencing the redemption of God's people out of Egypt, but also the reference to the creation and of God hanging the sun and the moon in their places. He owns the day and the night. Verse 16, yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. God is Lord over creation and thus all of creation must obey him. The psalmist, have regard for your covenant in verse 20, for the dark places are full of the habitations of violence. It might seem odd that the psalmist would say to remember your covenant, to remember what you've promised, because God doesn't forget. And that's, that's the important part here. But as the psalmist writing this in the midst of great calamity, the temple's been destroyed, Jerusalem has been burned down, Nebuchadnezzar is now over Israel, Israel is captive of Babylon, their king has been deposed. It's easy that they might think these, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. The promise of the land is gone because of their disobedience. And, I mean, they were told that in Deuteronomy 28 and 29 that if they were disobedient, their land would be taken from them. The promise of the Davidic king who will reign forever seems to have been forgotten. And it would seem that God has forsaken his people that he has redeemed. And in verse 21, 
given the appropriate response to our troubles. Let not the trodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Remember back to Psalm 72 for a moment, that God cares for the poor and needy. And the psalmist here calls the poor and needy to look back to God in praise. Then the psalmist closes with the, with the psalm then closes with the psalmist urging the Lord to action. Arise, O God, defend your cause. What is the Lord's cause? Ultimately, the Lord is maximizing his glory, which includes judging the wicked and defending his name. The psalmist writes in verse 18, the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. The psalmist is asking that the Lord defends his name. About 700 years after this psalm was written, and after the temple, the first temple was destroyed, Jesus was scoffed and mocked. And while he was being flogged, he was blindfolded and beaten, and those beating him were mocking him, saying, which one of us struck you? On the cross, insults were thrown at Jesus. Those looked at him and said, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. He saved others, he cannot save himself, and yet even one of the ones crucified next to him was also mocking him. And yet in this mocking and scoffing, the Lord was working all things for his glory and the good of his people. For a moment, it may have seemed as if God was mocked and scorned and that those who opposed him, who were mocking and scorning him, had won. Yet on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. Those who were mocking him and scoffing him were soon silenced. And God has worked salvation in his son Jesus through the midst of the earth. The one who conquered death and who crushed the head of the serpent. And yet the scoffing hasn't stopped. Still, today, we as a church are mocked and scoffed as people mock our faith in Jesus. They claim that we believe in magic sky daddy, the worst criticism, just dumb. Um, or they claim that we're too foolish to investigate the claims, that we're too foolish to read the Bible that we have, or that we just haven't looked at it critically. And yet, none of those things are true. Because as I've said before, the Bible is the most well-attested document in history. And we have great reason and great evidence to believe what's in the scriptures. But yet even beyond that, even beyond us being mocked as Christians, we see that God is scoffed and mocked. But we're reminded that a day of judgment is coming when the scoffing and the mocking will stop. Those who would mock the Lord and mock his people will be silenced. Their protests and pejoratives will be turned to praise, whether they like it or not, because they will have no choice. In the return of Christ, as we see the king in his beauty, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is Lord. The scoffing will stop. The mocking will stop. That God will not hold back his hand. And so for us, come what may, the Lord is bigger than our troubles. The Lord is bigger than our monsters and our chaos. As Israel here is facing invasion from another country, their ability to worship, 
the way that the Lord has prescribed has been remoked, revoked. There is no temple. They cannot worship rightly. Their land has been taken. King Jeconiah has been deposed, or Jehoiakim, same person. And the Lord has told this king in Jeremiah that he will be cast off. His signet ring will be taken and thrown away. Yet not long after the destruction of the, of the first temple, the prophet Haggai was told the latter glory of the temple will surpass the glory of the former temple. He's told the latter glory of the second temple will surpass that of the first. When the second temple was built, those who had seen the first temple wept because it paled in comparison to the first temple. And yet ultimately, what happens at the second temple that's far greater is that that is where Jesus walked. The second temple is the temple where Jesus came in and cleansed the temple. There was a bit of a separation as Herod came and did, you know, extreme home makeover and made the temple nicer, but same temple. And yet, it's at that temple where our Lord was crucified. And though the king had been deposed in Babylon with a, with a takeover, though Jeconiah had been seemingly the last king of Israel, the Lord Jesus outside that temple was crucified and coronated and crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The people of Israel would have had no idea at the time of this psalm that greater things awaited them and that there would be a rich and glorious future to be awaited that was much greater than the momentary affliction they were facing in Babylon. And we fear many things still today. And so whether it's an invasion from another country or whether it's World War III or wicked governmental leaders, whether it's another global pandemic or economic recession or even just a head cold, whether it's miscarriage or poverty or even just loneliness, God is bigger than all of our problems and we can have faith in Him. And one day, all of those things will be stomped out as sin is forever defeated and sin is gone and it plagues us no more. We have a wonderful eternity to look forward to with a mighty, mighty God. This text shows us very clearly that God is working even in the midst of chaos and that He is bigger than all of our problems. Our problems are not too big for God, but they're also not too small for God either. And that we can trust in Him. We can trust in the God who is working salvation in the midst of the earth, who has crushed the heads of serpents and of leviathans. We worship and we serve a very big God who is near to the brokenhearted and who cares for His people. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in knowing that you are good. Even when things seem difficult and hard and hopeless, even when we have no idea what's going on in the world around us and we fear the worst, we can take comfort in knowing that you've got the whole world in your hands. Even as Israel mourned the loss of their temple and the loss of their land, you were still working in that. You were still good, even as their land and kingdom was taken from them 
you were still in control and working all things for your glory. Because what awaited them was much greater than they would have imagined, was much greater than they could have foreseen, even in the midst of great loss. Lead us to have faith in you, even when it's hard to be faith, to have the faith, even when we are not faithful. Lead us to have faith in you, knowing that you are always faithful. You are always good. And lead us to look to your son, Jesus, knowing that what was provided in him is much greater than we can fathom or imagine. Lead us to rest in Christ in the midst of all things, in comfort or in chaos. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.